0: Welcome to the PWGC Environmental Echo. I'm your host, Paul Boyce, CEO and President of PWGC. Today's topic is going to be lake and pond rehabilitation and restoration work here locally and throughout New York State. Uh, My guest and Senior Vice President and leader of our Environmental Compliance Group is Chris Omskog. He's been with the firm for, oh, my God, it's well over 20 years yep. at this point. We won't go into the exact date, but it's, it's you know, it's been a life sentence like yours truly. And, uh, you know, we love it. But he has been the, the leader in our pond work over the last, I don't know, five, six, maybe seven years now it's been going on. Uh, and we've been getting into quite a bit of this stuff. It's very interesting. Um, it's very relevant to what's going on, you know, locally and regionally uh, lately. Uh, due to you know whether you believe in it or not climate change nitrogen phosphorus nutrients all getting into these ponds and, and affecting you know what's in there um, and what's growing in there and what's happening to them so um, you know we, we look at all different aspects of these things be it invasive species from an aquatic type of standpoint which could be you know obviously it could be the first thing you think of as a species is a fish but what really may affect a pond or a lake turns out to be the, the, the vegetation you know in terms of invasive species and we also look at some of the other water quality and water chemistry problems uh, often associated with algal blooms or the cyanobacteria you know all those lovely different colors they turn that can be toxic and, and harmful to humans pets and uh, you know aquatic life um, so these are some of the the issues we're trying to address as, as an environmental firm here in long island and throughout new york state so chris um why don't you just tell me a little bit about your experience with some of these ponds and and lakes you know um, what you've been up to and then we'll get into some you know discussion
1: sure thanks for having me uh chris omskog a professional geologist in the state of new york and i got involved with uh with waterways again probably two decades ago uh, with the firm i've always grown up on the water always boated swam fished um all parts of the state and northeast, and it's always something that really interests me. And we have a number of uh, hundreds and thousands of ponds and lakes on Long Island. Uh, Long Island, New York, uh, we have numerous lakes, and a lot of these lakes and ponds are man made. And then there were natural creeks, or they would collect stormwater made for mills uh, hundreds of years ago. And over time, uh, natural breakdown of leaves and branches and organisms in the bottom Uh, a lot of these ponds have led up to you know significant uh, amounts of black sediment black organic rich uh, mud sediments in the bottom uh, of these ponds in addition as more and more people farms you know around these ponds and lakes fertilizers from farm farmlands from people fertilizing their lawns Animal wastes uh, run off into the ponds, and then in addition, uh, you also have invasive aquatic species that were introduced from people's fish tanks um, or even from migratory birds flying, you know, up and down the uh, up and down the waterways, introducing them, getting stuck to you know duck duck feet and and bring them between different ponds, and it's become uh, a serious problem because these ponds and lakes that were heavily used for recreation and for habitat. A lot of them have become, basically, uh, they've become really dense with vegetation at the point where the recreation opportunities have diminished. Habitat for native fish, uh, amphibians, has really been decreased. And it's also affected, you know, just the general environmental quality and affects uh, people's visual aesthetics of ponds and lakes and in some ways property values as well.
0: I mean, you just brought up a, a, a half a dozen to a dozen different topics that just got my mind racing on all of this stuff, you know, starting with the, the invasive species, you know, and even the, the aquatic fowl. And I've been involved with numerous of these projects with you. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, we, we see these, um, Canada geese, you know, uh, you want to talk about invasive species in my mind, you know, these things they're here now, they eat a lot. And they do something after they eat a lot, which ends up at the bottom of the pond or the lake. And that adds to that organic muck, Mm. debris, or whatever you want to call it. That's at the bottom of the pond that these invasive um, vegetative species love to grow in as opposed to like hard packed, you know, clean sand, right? Correct. So what are we doing? You know, what's, what's, how do we stop? the problem as opposed to you know and we're going to get into what the, what the the band-aid or the fix is that these real re- re- rehabilitations or restorations but is there a way to even stop the problem before it happens
1: there there are various aspects that you can kind of look at this much like many problems and one is outreach and education is, is always should always be the first step about you know just about oh, septic systems and fertilizing lawns and about you know animal proper animal control and 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 you know canada geese they are a significant issue you know in many parts of the state over populations you know which isn't healthy for the species and it not healthy for the ecosystem um unfortunately <laughs> over you know hunting them i don't think is, is really going to be a, a that that's a, a tricky one and it's not just uh um uh, Canada Goose uh, excrement which is the problem yeah. but um, it is it's a number of issues and you know what we're seeing is a big step they've taken in, in parts of especially the Adirondacks has been education and outreach and signage and even permitting you know you bring a boat and you want to put it in Lake George they have they have stops that you have to go and wash your boat out sometimes you're even checked in before you're even given a sticker before you can put your boat in those waterways because the concern is that you'll have something on your trailer on the boat in the bilge uh you in know invasive species yeah that's I've, chris I've, I've heard people with even yeah.
0: fishing equipment right. the, the anchors on the boat the lines you know everything it's like those sp-
1: all get checked i was in a regatta in in lake george a few years ago and we had to bring brought a boat from Long island up there and, and we had to clean out everything with a mild bleach solution, then have it inspected, you know, visually inspected before we were allowed to put the boat in the water. So that is is one of the first steps of, you know, it's kind of education and institutional controls to kind of limit, to limit potential spreads that would be for invasive species. But then also for that, you want to educate people about the negative effects of nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, you know, you know, from, also from laundry cleanser, cleansers as well, that uh, when they go in the drywalls or runoff, they, they flush into flush into the lakes, and those are big contributors to uh, algae blooms, you know, that, that initially you get, you know, you hear things down here in the bays, red algae, brown algae, mahogany tide, uh, but then they also, you have r- blue-green algaes, which are known to be toxic, um, and a lot of these things, although many of the algae blooms don't really have an immediate health effect on humans. A lot of them do kill off a lot of the clams, oysters uh, that are on the bottom, which are filter feeders and also clean the bays. This is salt water now we're getting to uh, as opposed to ponds. So there is a uh, an effect, you know, a domino effect where, where you start to wreak havoc on a little bit of the population in the habitat. And that in, in chase causes detrimental effects to other parts of the ponds and lakes as well
0: i mean you touched on a lot again and it goes back maybe a couple of podcasts ago we, we talked about nitrogen from sanitary systems from homes you know being a, a major problem down here on on long island you know um, we're putting it all into the ground into the groundwater and ultimately it's flowing you know ended up in these surface water bodies as, as a nutrient source and it's just you know like fertilizer for you know an invasive species um, you know, but th- you brought up another point, you know, how, how the stuff gets there in the first place, you know, a, could come in on a, on a bird or a fowl, or it could come in on a boat. You know, you, you hear stories about people dumping fish tanks, you know, um, is that true? Does that happen? I mean, it, how, and you know, you talked about education, you know, how do you stop it? How do you prevent it? How do you educate people? Not to, you know, your you fish is all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're moving or whatever. You want to get rid of the fish. You don't, you don't dump it in a pond.
1: The invasive species is a that is how most of it you know most scientists think they, they got there by fish tanks and and people would you know when they get tired they dump their fish tank in the street and you'd have some uh, weeds kind of grow down go down and wash into the local pond and one of the things that's been done to stop that you know fish stores are you know limited on what what aquatic plants they could sell you know in order to minimize that impact. But once it really gets into, once, a, once a, something like an aquatic invasive species gets into a, a lake or a pond or a river system, it, it is a tricky thing to, you know, totally eradicate. Um, and it, we can talk about, you know, some of the methods a little bit later. But the invasive species that, that's generally brought in through, through fish tanks, there are stories about, you know, you know about boating and, and bringing it through boating and, and, and migratory waterfowl as well that, that introduce it. But, you know, they, they say the main reason is, the main cause is, is fish tanks and, and, um, and what people have brought in. It looks nice in their fish tank. It, the same reason it grows very well in a fish tank. It's very hardy. It's, it's hard to kill. It You know, it thrives on nutrient-rich, so the, the fish in the fish tank, It the nutrients that the fish let off, it, you know, it'll cause those aquatic invasive, you know, aquatic weeds and, and plants to grow really well is why they do very well in a pond or a lake where it, you do have lots of nutrients and you have this, you know, layer of soft um, soft organic rich, soft sediment on the bottom, which again, it, it's very easy to take root in those materials. They are just a bundle of nutrients ready to kind of take take that invasive weed and, you know, give it the energy it needs to grow and then spread out. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen pictures of lakes and ponds and been in lakes and ponds where mm-hmm. unfortunately you can't cast a fishing pole because you can't reel it back. You can't kayak, you can't nope. canoe can't because it it's almost to the point where you could walk across the, uh, not necessarily lily pads, but the weeds floating at top. So, uh, it has become, uh, you know, a major problem in, you know, suburban areas. Um, not as much in, you know, rural areas yet, but you know, it, it's something that is spreading and it is better to avoid <laughs> once you have the problem it's much better to find ways to avoid it through education permitting now uh, before it gets there because then the remedial efforts and the cost unfortunately get you know get driven significantly higher and the permitting requirements.
0: Now, most of these invasive species, if I'm not mistaken, generally grow in more shallow water, right? And here in Long Island, we have a lot of ponds that are maybe less than 10 feet deep, lakes that are less than 10 feet deep, they're pretty shallow. So this stuff, you know, it's getting plenty of sunlight down there and, you know, is this a similar issue upstate? We may have some deeper lakes.
1: It, it, It doesn't, you're not gonna have the problem in at least in deeper lakes, at least in the deeper portions of lakes. You'll get it skirted around the outskirts mm. of the the ponds and the lakes. Um, but you will get it in the shallower lakes. And like you said, 10 foot is generally the, the depth at which photosynthesis and, you know, the plants really have a hard time getting started if they're deeper than 10 feet due to photosynthesis. You also have the, the thermal, um, thermal segregation of the waters in deeper lakes. Yep uh... which basically you have an oxygenation issue in, in lakes and ponds and the oxygen and, and transfer the oxygen through the lakes and ponds also are one of the things that help break down that organic rich uh, organic rich layer at the bottom so once a pond or, or a lake, once a lake is deeper than ten feet generally the deeper parts of the lake are are immune to these, at least the invasive species, but you will get it around the perimeter of the lake.
0: How do we? treat the stuff? How do we get rid of it once it's in there? You know, I know there's numerous techniques, technologies, methods, um, means to to, to to get this stuff out and try to keep it out. But, um, you know, what are we seeing that's effective around here? What are we employing these days? You know, what hasn't worked so well? You know, what are your thoughts on that stuff?
1: It, it's you have to look at each system independently and figure out what are your limitations. And, and some of those limitations are going to be Um, one, there are going to be permits involved with uh, state, local, possibly uh, federal agencies to see what you're allowed to do. You're going to have to look at the lake and the pond, who is the owner, who are the surrounding owners, and generally you need a a, a consensus on how you're going to treat this. So you you need to get uh, buy-in from the stakeholders on treatment. You need to look at, you know, if there are any specific uh, uh, fish, wildlife that, you know, are, are critical or endangered in the area uh, and that might really limit some of these options and as far as how you move forward and time frame schedule and then cost and uh, you know how are you oh, gonna yeah. cover these things those are all uh, factors that have to be taken and taken a look at in each each application but um, generally you want to really evaluate the lake and pond how big is it how deep is it how thick is that muck layer how dense are the weeds? what is the, uh, turnover rate, which is a big one of the, of the lake system. I mean, uh,
0: turnover in terms of like the residence time of water in there, correct. how long it takes to you know, to
1: volume of water in the pond or lake to turnover? It goes from, you know, <laughs> exactly <laughs> okay. uh, that turnover rate. If it's a very slow turnover rate, you know, then some options that have been employed successfully are use of, uh, herbicides to basically, uh, you know, broadcast in the lake uh, at the right time of year when those plants are really absorbing, absorbing the uh, herbicides, you could broadcast them and you might have to do this every few seasons, but if you do at the right time of year and if the turnover of the lake is slow enough, uh, meaning once you put that herbicide in the lake, you don't want it to just wash right through the lake system yeah. and go downstream and not be effective. So you really need to understand, you know, the science and your inputs and outputs of the lake. But herbicides are a proven method to deal with it. They do have their downsides. And again, you have to look at the ecology of the lake and the lake system before you do that and get permits. Um, there are other options such as going out there and, and just hand pulling the weeds. That's a that's a very uh, labor intensive. And again, it's not gonna be a permanent fix. It's gonna need to be maintenance time after time, but that is something that can be done. There are mechanical, uh, rakes and floating rakes where you can go in and rake the weeds up, and that does that's help. but
0: mechanical harvesting is what I correct. believe it's called, right? Correct. I don't want to say we're mowing the lawn, but we're... Uh <laughs> yeah, no, you're mowing, basically mowing <laughs> the lawn in <laughs> the
1: lake, and, and it's 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 very effective in the short term, and and that's one of the other limiting factors. You really have to figure out your stakeholders. Do they mind doing like maintenance activities? Is that something that they want, or do they really want to try and... Kill off the weed as as much as possible, and then have a very reduce the maintenance required to control it. So some other issues that have been employed have been using fish such as carp to go Ah, and eat the 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 grass carp. Yeah, Yeah. and that works for a while until the carp get old and lazy, and then they don't they don't tend to eat as much. we're also looking at technologies such as, you know, putting, putting mats over the weeds and oh. basically starving them for- benthic uh, mats, minute. yeah. Yep. And that is a fairly fairly easy, low cost option, but it, again, you can only do small portions of the lake at once and those do need to be moved and, and the weeds will eventually come back. Mm-hmm. Um, other options include introducing oxygen to the bottom muck layer um, to break down that, uh, the, the organic rich material a little quicker. Uh, this has been employed in some places uh, that we're looking into to see, you know, there are definite limitations on, on that technology, such as turnover and, and how quickly the water is moving and how thick the muck layer is. So that's something that can be explored. Uh, the, the Probably the best way to control the weeds in the long term is to remove that uh, organic rich layer from the bottom of the lake or pond, uh, and that would be through uh, dredging or lowering the lake and doing excavation and getting down to a, uh, a clay or rock or sand or gravel where, mm-hmm. where the weeds really won't take root, uh, as quickly and easily. Uh, so those are the main methods that are being employed. What about Well, the
0: one other thing you didn't yeah. mention I've, I've, I've heard, I haven't yeah. seen it and we've discussed it is freezing, right? Yes. Does, yep. does that work? Is that practical? I mean, is, unless it's gotta be like, you know, in Ant- Antarctica or someplace where it's cold enough
1: to do it. But. It does work, but in, in, let's say, in my discussions with uh, DEC, they've had some success in way in the northern part of the state where they could lower, basically lower drain the lake or pond over a, an extreme winter. And if it gets cold enough, and if that frost, you know, you can penetrate into that muck layer deep enough, uh, to kill the weed, kill the invasive weed, kill the root system. Yeah. Uh, then it will be effective. But it, it's um, so the geographic region that you can do that is 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 limited, and you need a really really harsh long winter and, and a good uh, perma. You need to get the permafrost down deep enough in order to you know affect where the the roots of the weeds are. So uh, on New York City area, I, it has not been advised, and I don't think there've been any really successful options. If you lower a lake for, you know, for over winter, you will have a short-term effect on it. You know, the weeds aren't gonna come back as strong the next year. Uh, and that's DEC, and you know, we've talked about that as being like a cyclical kind of a restoration approach. Um, and that is tricky to get permits for if you're looking to do it every year uh, because the, the concerns about how the uh, amphibians and, and and other um other animals and oh, fish
0: we've had turtle issues yep. we've you know yes. fish
1: you know that they're, they're
0: you know yeah. you, you got to be mindful you know yes. so as you know all of those you, you mentioned you know physical chemical mechanical uh climatological type of means to you know eradicate these invasive species and what i'm primarily focusing on here is again the vegetation you know the weeds if you will the fanwort the milfoil you know all those stuff that's real hardy real invasive real prolific especially if you have the, the conditions um, but what about like uh, you know we mentioned some of the, the bacteria problems you know the water quality um, cyano you know I, I, the cyanobacteria the blue-green algae the other the other fun stuff that gets in there and you know I've been reading some stuff real recent uh, has to do with applying like hydrogen peroxide and the use of like ultrasonic type of energy. Um, what kind of success? To, are are you familiar with any of that stuff that we could share with our listeners?
1: Yes. Well, a, a lot of it is they're they're doing a lot of pilot tests in New York. Late, oh, well, they're doing several pilot tests in New York to really look at the successful, how successful some of those new technologies can be, and they all have an application at least in uh, you know a lab. And they are seeing how they could be scaled up to really be effective on, you know, a lake or pond size application. Uh, things like the ultrasonic uh, technology. That theory is that you know, as the algae starts to form, you hit it with an ultrasonic wave, that causes the algae almost to sink down to the bottom, and it's no longer a problem. And at the same time, the you know, dosing the lake uh, or pond with peroxide will have a similar effect on, on killing off the algae if it's done at the right time. Uh, they've also looked at ways to take out some of the lake and pond water and filter it uh, to get out some of the algae as well. So uh, again, the, the algae and uh, is basically caused by the nutrient loading into the pond. So all these things are valid options to look at. You know, they should also be looked at is how do we control how do we control the reoccurring problem so in addition you're, you're to reading my mind
0: yeah. <laughs> you know we're, we're putting we're doing the band-aids correct. here correct we're, we're, not, we're not treating the uh <laughs> the cause so to speak
1: yeah and i think each one has an application that that would work uh, you want to focus on how do we treat how do we treat the reoccurring uh source of the problem because doing that Band-Aid year after year, after year, after year, oh, it's costly, Costly. <laughs> it's unsightly, it's uh, uh, so, you know, it should be part of a bigger remedial effort to look at where the source is coming from and how do we, how do we change practices or sewer or what, maybe we could design some bioswales where the road runoff is to, you know, so we have an upland uh, upland vegetation that absorbs a lot of those nutrients before they get into the pond. Um, So things like that should really be looked at as part of a bigger remedial approach to those issues because uh, the treatment of the blue-green algae, once you have it, um, it, it's it's part of the problem, but it it doesn't solve the problem and you're still gonna have those reoccurring areas that still get the blue-green algae and the other other algal blooms that that just really um, are unsightly and, and, and potentially dangerous oh man it just (laughs) that
0: is it's really it just blows my mind you know how we again we treat the symptom and not the cause and and again it's it's short term it's easier it's quicker you know you get something done but it's it's going to come back yeah you know so it's just uh, mind blowing here um you know you mentioned a little bit about the regulatory requirements you know obviously the state some of the local um agencies here in new york city the island upstate You know, what are some of the real big permitting obstacles with trying to do some of these, you know, treatments or restorations or techniques that we want to employ? You know, like like you said, a benthic mat. That's, you know, it's simple. You you put a mat down on top of the stuff so sunlight, you you can ballast it so it doesn't float away, prevents sunlight from getting down there, and and they die off, but, you know, they can come back. Uh, What's involved in terms of, you know, convincing a, a regulatory agency that, you know, this is the way to go?
1: Well, generally, you know, the general main regulatory agency who's gonna you know, have the authority is gonna be DEC, but then you're also likely gonna be dealing with a local town agency, you know, and, and possibly a uh, federal agency as well, depending on the waterway. Um, and DEC, I'd say their main concern is, is what, what remedial or restoration effort that you take, how is it gonna affect uh, the fish and the amphibians and uh, other aquatic life and waterfowl in that area, is it going to have any significant effect on them, or potential on animals that are downstream? What is what is going to be the effect? And, and lo- the local DEC office generally knows, you know, most of the lakes and ponds in the area is familiar with some of the issues. So, any approach or any you know any approach that you're looking to take, you know, you want to have a, you'll want to have some meetings with DEC to discuss it before you put in a formal application to make sure if they've seen something. Locally, that's worked. Worked on a pond or a lake like that. You know, you could discuss it. If they've seen things that didn't work, they're more likely to um, question why do you think your application would work in, in your sense. There are also ways, things like uh, the vegetative mats. If it's a small enough area in the lake, you could get permits, uh, research permits, to to try it out in a small area, and it might not take as long to secure a permit. Uh, if DEC knows you're going to be working in a small area and, and seeing what the effects the effects are. So we're currently doing something with New York State uh, DOT uh, for some of the New York City reservoirs, looking at how, mm-hmm. how they could possibly improve their uh, spec design for stormwater sand filters that come off their New York State DOT highways. Yep. With the purpose of how do they design the sand filters, Uh, possibly with bioswales to reduce mainly phosphorus they're looking at. So when there's excrement or waste on the road that gets washed off and before it gets into a creek that's going to feed one of the reservoirs, they're looking for ways to capture that waste, put it through a sand filter before it gets into the creek, and have that sand filter and the vegetation absorb the nutrients before it gets to the, you know, again, they're trying to solve the problem before the reservoir gets heavily laden with some of these nutrients. So that's an exciting project we're, we're working on, looking at sampling, looking at, looking at sampling pre and post levels of of uh, uh, during certain rainfall events to see how these sand filters are performing now, so we can help redesign and see how can they be designed even better in the future.
0: Wow, so. and, and you know, I. Th- been involved, like I said, numerous projects, and a lot of our projects involved actually either lowering the, the, the lake water level or, or draining it completely. And, uh, you know, always a hot topic when you do that is, you know, what's going to happen downstream? You know, you're releasing a, a larger volume of water than is normally coming out of this thing. You know, it's we either have a dam or a weir, and we pull a few boards out or the whole thing out, and, you know, <laughs> stuff water starts flowing out. You know, there's always concerns about um, downstream dams. Or there's concerns about downstream water quality. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, yeah. some of the, the, the obstacles we may face if we, you know, if somebody's trying to look to to lower the water to maybe, as you mentioned, excavate it or dredge it or, or whatever they want to do.
1: Yep, that's a good question. And, and one of the projects we recently worked on had to do with lowering the water. And we had to before we were even able to think about lowering it, we had to uh, do basically a dam safety evaluation of of, of the condition of the existing earth berm dam to ensure that in the process, it wasn't going to give way and things weren't going to go out. So that was the first, uh, first step in doing that. But then once that was done and we were getting permits to actually lower the lake, we had to really concern ourselves with things such as turbidity, uh, because you do have a pent up amount of uh, sediment in the lake and, and you don't want to just move the problem somewhere else. So that's a big, oh yeah. a big issue that, uh at DEC and, and nearby you know, communities and, and, you know, property you owners know, are, are worried about. Some of the other things that should be thought about in advance, especially if they're sensitive uh, fisheries downstream, uh, will be what effect is lowering the lake gonna have on the, the temperature of the water downstream. You have certain fish that, uh, that need certain spawning, temperature, of certain spawning uh, range for effective spawning. And they need, you know, clean, sandy, gravelly bottoms as well for spawning as well. So, um, so those are some of the things that you have conversations with DEC about, and you you talk to their fisheries people and to understand what's downstream, what what are going to be the significant limitations, and, and when you go to the design, how are you going to lower the lake? How are you going to lower the pond? you Better understand what engineering controls and that's where I came programs. in. That's yep. that's I know more about the, that than the actual you
0: know the issue with you know turbidity downstream. Yep. You know, what are we doing to the, the fish, the turtles, yep. the frogs, the eels? You know,
1: and then they also have limitations on the time of year that uh they'll you should raise or lower the lake because once the turtles and what once things start to hibernate for the oh, winter, yeah. you have you don't want to be adjusting the water level you know before or after uh the hibernation, so you really need to time the time the lowering you know effectively so so you're not having having a negative effect on on creatures that do winter and burrow into for the season so those are the main you know turbidity temperature and kind of the seasonality and the timing of when you lower those things you know really really you're going to be you know the key drivers Um, then also you just have to think about when it is lowered you know is this going to be one season two seasons for sediment to dry out for it to be, you know, effectively Mm. removed because this, this material is, some of it has like a, a pudding type consistency and for it to be removed, it needs to dry up a little bit before it can be scraped out.
0: Uh, that's, that's a very good point. You know, dealing with the stuff and once you get it out of the pond, you know, what do we do with it?
1: It, uh, usually part of the D.C. permitting process, we're going in and we're taking sediment samples. Um, Sometimes we do it when the lake's frozen. We walk out there, drill a hole like we're ice fishing. Sometimes we go out in a small boat and we grab uh, sediment samples from uh, various areas of the the lake bottom. We run those for various analytical uh, parameters to see are those sediments safe? Are they impacted in any way? And then we look at options. Uh, Quite often, you know, we could use those sediments at a local landfill as daily cap material. Um, We have been looking at ways to reuse them in town and county parks. Uh, We were just very successful. I think, uh, from what I understand, it might have been the first New York State DEC beneficial use determination to use some of these sediments in an agricultural setting. So we took out several thousand yards of sediment from a a pond on the east end, and it had some elevated nutrients as, as the, you know, as collects runoff and and the sure. organic material breaks down, but otherwise it was fairly, fairly clean. We got permission to take it to a local farm and deposit it on the farm. That farmer now is going to till it into the topsoil and it's going to reduce his need for adding additional fertilizer that he would have had to in the past. Beneficial so, use. Yep, huh? yep. So we're very excited about that and hoping that, you know, that could be a model going forward because one of the limitations, as we talked about it, being the cost, Yeah. The, generally the main limitation on on excavating or dredging ponds is it's going to be expensive to get rid of the material Uh, it's so if we could find ways to find alternatives to disposing of it or paying to landfill it you know and, and and those are beneficial alternatives we see that as being being a step in the right direction towards helping remediate or restore additional ponds throughout the state
0: so just, you know, just trying to get the stuff to dry out, you know, if, if you, you pull it out as opposed to leaving it in place, you know, what do we do? Do we, we build a berm? Do we put it in like these, the geotubes or the geosocks? What, what, have, we, what have we done in, you know, on a recent project?
1: We've, you can pump it into like an earthen dike if you're doing hydraulic dredging. If you're leaving the lake the same level and you're going to basically suck the water, suck you suck out some su- water, mm-hmm. some sediment. And you could pump that into an earthen dike you can do it into geo uh, geotubes which are long basically sausage casings yep. with filter uh, depending on the sediment size they could clog up fairly quickly so that has to be excuse me that has to be looked at in advance to make sure uh, it's not going to not going to fail upon implementation um, if it, it's hard in most of the settings i've seen you could, if the lake or the pond is small enough, uh, you could dredge, you know, with a, a specialty excavation mm-hmm. bucket and then dump it into the, you know, build a small earthen berm on the side of the lake or pond while it dries out. Um, there are also options depending on how quickly the project needs to move. You could mix certain uh, kiln dust and other things with it to dry it out quicker if need be, if you need to, get it up and away from the lake or pond site quicker uh, so you could restore, you know, the lakeside area. So uh,
0: you're, you're leading me to more questions. You know, like when we, we pull this stuff out of, the, out of the pond, you know, and we want to put it someplace to dry or, or store it, you know, oftentimes there's there could be odors. As it's drying, there could be dust. What do we do to, to mitigate that stuff, especially if it's, you know, in an area that may be surrounded by residential or, you know, businesses or, or somebody that's, that may be affected?
1: If it's odors, I mean, it, depending on, you, you could always cap it with plastic, you know, temporarily. Uh, the other thing that could be done is is quickly go in and plant some seed on it. So it, it kind of, I don't want it almost, then it crusts over, you get some vegetation, you could crust over. Uh, we, uh, a recent project, we were worried about the odors as the lake went down yeah. and the weeds died, and it turned out to not be as a significant event as we thought because we lowered it in the, uh, you know, by the time, by the time things lowered and you know in the fall, you know people's windows were more closed and, and the the odor from the breakdown was not as strong as we anticipated, so it it just didn't have the effect. So we haven't seen the odor being an issue. Uh, as for dust, a lot of these piles, you know, if they are uncovered, when they dry, they'll start to catch get some vegetation uh, naturally, and that reduces the dust as well, and hasn't hasn't really been an issue. Um, transporting them again is is. Is tricky just because they are very soupy to begin with. Yeah. So, so you, we've done things such as lined, uh, poly-lined trucks um, that we've had to do to make sure when the truck drives down the street, you know, things aren't seeping out. And, and uh, you know, specialty you know, the truck goes off on on uh, riprap to, and cleans off the tires, so we're not traipsing things in the neighborhood. So it depends on the setting uh, and and you know what how to design the. The removal process.
0: So going forward, you know, what, what's what's the grand scheme? What's what's the, what's the plan? You know, uh, how do we afford to, to you know restore these ponds? How do we afford to prevent them from getting to this posi- place? I mean, obviously, sewering and innovative alternative sanitary systems for move night. We know that, but
1: what else can be done? The state is a, a state DEC is doing a lot of outreach. Uh, they have you know groups. Dedicated to trying to address the issue, community groups and, and there their other uh, community activism groups that are kind of trying to educate as well. Um, but it should it, it's going to need to be completed on multi multi levels so, of you know government community groups. Stakeholders. Yeah, this,
0: this is not a magic bullet or one size fits yeah. all. I get it. But yeah,
1: the sewers and uh, a combination of reducing or, or applying fertilizers when it's best best to apply them, so you're reducing runoff. Um, sewering, you know, areas that are close to water bodies, they were the groundwater is is negatively affecting them. Those are going to have to be major steps in, in any kind of long-term, you know, lake restoration. As far as the invasive species, you know, um, once they're in, we're looking at, you know, for several clients right now, we're looking at several options, some being short-term and some being long-term, because again, some of the larger options and excavation or dredging are quite costly so we're we're seeing if there's a a two-tiered approach where you could have a short-term gain you know as you're as you're building up to do the final you know final dredging or excavation of the pond Um, we've discussed some things with DEC as far as maybe some ponds we could possibly make deeper so therefore uh, deeper are the ponds you may get some around the perimeter some weeds but the deeper areas be fee- free from uh, weeds and invasive so you know you could still enjoy a large portion of the pond as recreational
0: hmm. so what do you do with the material you mucked out them to make to make them deeper
1: <laughs> that's up to that's up to the yeah. own, owner of the pond and the lake and, uh, yeah. and that the regulator could, i guess we to. have looked at that as a way to possibly offset the cost of some of these pond remediations and it, if the circumstances are right it's, it could possibly be something that works um, again a lot of ponds are owned by municipalities, local governments, yeah. sometime by community groups and a community association so you know if these one of the best things they could do is just start the dialogue early because the permitting process uh, you know possibly getting grant money or you know getting the funding to do it may take several years so I'd, I'd say what I've seen with many of the pond projects we've been involved in usually it's it's we're involved for two to three years before any any shovel hits the ground you know that's design, permitting, looking at alternative options, you know, and, and obtaining, you know, the municipality, obtaining the funding sources available. So, you know, if they think they have a problem, or even before they have a problem, just start planning, look at some of the literature that's out there to, you know, educate the community, you know, about what the downside is if they don't, an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of, pound of cure, right? So educate so the community about how to avoid a circumstance like that occurring before it occurs, if there it already exists, then start evaluating some of the options and see what fits your specific set of criteria and your limitations on, on then you know, work with an engineer or consultant to see and, and the regulators to see what some of the options are. Interesting.
0: You know it- and I hope I, our listeners get an appreciation of uh, the diversity of these, these the problems that some of these lakes yeah. and ponds and streams can, can face, you know, from just talking about water levels to water quality to, to invasive species to, you know, muck and geese. And yeah. it just goes on and on and on, you know. And, and I think it was a very interesting discussion, Chris. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thank Pre- you very much for having me. Appreciate your time today. Uh, so I just I do want to wrap up and, and thank our listeners for joining us. Uh, we are PWGC, and this is our podcast. If there are further questions or comments or you'd like to you know, reach out to us, you can always get us at uh, pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. Uh, I am Paul Boyce, your host, and I, I do want to thank everyone for joining us again today. It's been a pleasure to have Chris Omskog, our thank Senior you. Vice President of the Environmental Compliance Group at PWGC. Uh, and I hope everyone found this as educational and informative as I have. Thank you.